Hello, everybody, and welcome to Arcana Uncorked. The podcast where we uncork some homebrew and discuss whether or not it's right for your game. I'm Patrick, uh, and I am a D&D 5e player who's been playing D&D 5e in 3.5 for about 10 years on and off. Interested in creating homebrew in the future. Occasional homebrew poster to r slash Arcana. And uh, I'm Andrew. I've been playing D&D about 14 years, AD&D 3.5 and 5th edition, uh, but mostly I'm a person on the internet who has opinions. Yes, we are. Two D&D players, lots of opinions, occasional homebrew creators. Uh, oh, for those of you who aren't aware of what homebrew is, just in case this is a thing that you're not aware of yet. So when we talk about homebrew, um, obviously, for those of you who are familiar with D&D and other tabletop games, uh, every game comes with its own set of core rules that you bring with you to the table. Uh, but for some people, either feel like there are things they want to expand from the base rules and want to add things like new classes, new races, uh, or they feel like there are certain rules that would be more fun if they changed them. And so kind of any deviation from those base rules that are set up by the initial game creation is what we broadly would consider homebrew. The goal being to kind of expand beyond what the original material doesn't support. Yeah, and initially we're going to be talking about a lot of character option homebrew, specifically for Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. This is, you know, the, those races, classes, backgrounds sort of things. Uh, but as we get on in the podcast, we'll also be talking about certain DM rules. Uh, everybody knows about spell driver and bonus action potions, for instance, but also things like lingering injuries and resurrection tables. Lots of fun stuff. Yeah, all sorts of cool things that you can add and spice up your game, hopefully without being too complex, but really just adding whatever best suits your table, whether you've been playing the game for a couple months now and you're just ready to start spicing it up, or if you've been playing for years and you're looking for a new crunchy thing to really bring up your game and make it more interesting. Uh, so where can people find Homebrew, Andrew? Homebrew is found a lot of places. Um, I'm first going to mention a place that you can indeed find it, but I tend not to recommend, and that is the D&D Wiki. Oh, gosh. Yeah, <laughs> but we have... We we have to mention the D&D Wiki. There is honestly a ton of content on the D&D Wiki, and some of it is, in fact, very good. The problem is, is that the D&D Wiki um, has absolutely no peer review function whatsoever, so you will find the most excellent, most balanced, beautiful class you've ever seen, and it will look identical to somebody's anime fanboy dream class that they wrote, you know, out of the anime rulebook into 5e and has the strength of 10 paladins. Yeah, like, so you know how when you were in school, your teachers told you just because you saw it on Wikipedia doesn't make it true or good? Similarly here, finding something on the D&D wiki does not make it true or good. It does not mean it is not true or good, uh, but it is something that you should not look at and automatically pass on. Every homebrew in general is worth taking a closer look at before you introduce it to your game to make sure you really want it there. Um, that is especially true when we talk about the D&D wiki. Yes, and because of that, I tend not to go on there a lot, uh, because I don't have that sort of time. And there are plenty of communities, which we'll talk about in just a moment, where a lot of this sort of peer review is already done for you, and you can examine the uh, good bits and bad bits of a, cl of a class or a race with, you know, an online community of people who are also critically reviewing it, which is really nice. 
So, Pat, where can we find really nice homebrew, and where can we get this sort of peer review content? Yeah, so I think one of the most popular places people go for it, particularly for Dungeons & Dragons uh, 5e, I think especially among the community that Andrew might be familiar with, is the Unearthed Arcana subreddit. Uh, for those of you who aren't Reddit familiar, you can just go to www.reddit.com slash r slash unearthed arcana, um, or just Google it, put it in the Google machine, and they'll tell you where to go. Um, but it is a site that is, I mean, it's a subreddit, so it's a forum where people can post all sorts of their own uh, arcana, whether that's just a new race, a new class, if that's a compendium that they've worked on for years. Uh, they'll post it there, and like any forum, you can upvote it or downvote it to make it more less visible. There's a comment section where people will provide their critiques. You know, you have everyone from, like, really big creators out in the homebrew world that will come into small posts and provide little comments. And uh, it's also, you know, there's a structure to it, so everybody tries to provide the same amount of material when you go in. So everything's kind of on a level playing field, and you look at something you know it at least matches some level of post criteria most of the time. So if you're looking for 5e uh, homebrew, which is what we're mostly going to focus on here, um, since it's kind of our expertise, um, it's a really good place to look and just scan for things. Uh, then you can search for anything you want. I've often questioned whether X domain cleric existed, put it in Arnthrocon. I'm like, ah, yes, someone has tried that before. Let me take a look. Um, there are other places you can go, of course. Um, the DMs Guild, which is um, Wizards of the Coast's way of kind of allowing homebrew creators a monetization method, um, is a good place to find some really excellent stuff. Uh, the one you might be most familiar with is Benjamin Huffman's Pugilist class. We do like the DMs Guild. Um, there are a few things with it. A, um, a lot of the material there is monetized, so it's not nearly as freely accessible. Um, Wizards of the Coast does technically own all of the content on there, so buyer beware if you're trying to like put your content on there. It's just worth, it's always worth being conscious, especially when you're thinking about something to a new game. Um, you know, I think we tend to encourage methods where you're really supporting the creator of the content, and then also are. Ideally, you know, you have an environment where you can review it before you purchase it to some extent, um, just because that's, especially with Unearthed Arcana, you know, this is some stuff that might not have a really broad level of review on it. Um, so being able to really get a good idea of what you're purchasing before you purchase it is a nice thing. Um, yeah. And there, there is uh, a ton of pay what you want or um, material that has uh, their kind of like preview is actually a full preview of the document that you can read. So, again, not dissuading you from going on there and looking at stuff. There is some really lovely stuff on there. It is just sometimes a bit harder to access than the um, slash Unearthed Arcana sort of thing. Yep. And really, it's uh, the... Even if you're like a little confused about what's on there or not, often like going on to the Unearthed Arcana subreddit or the D&D subreddit, if you have any questions about, like, where do I go to find more? Or is, does this thing exist? Like, those people are generally... You know, as long as you follow the posting rules of the forum you're in, um, really good way to find more information about where you might find something or the best way to get access to some type of content. Um, I'm just going to bring up one more source for... Uh, this is Borderline Homebrew. Uh, it's more unofficial content, but there are a lot of thread-pratty uh, companies out there. 
that produce books are adventurers monster books, but even character option supplements for D&D 5e. Uh, I think the most popular one and the one that Pat and I have the most exposure to is Kobold Press. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, familiar. Yeah, they make some really excellent stuff, but there are a ton of third-party companies that are mostly just, you know, very similar to the people on DMs Guild or UA. They're just with a bit more funding making extra stuff for D&D. Yeah, no, it's uh, one of the really nice things about the way that Wizards has handled 5e is that, you know, a lot of the material that you need to make it is given pretty much free use as long as you attribute certain types of things like art and the general rule set to Wizards of the Coast. Like, everything else is pretty much has goes, and um, which makes it a really kind of fun environment for creators to get to work in, for people to explore how you work within this system that is D&D 5e and what kind of things can I do and um, how do I make sure that I can reflect any type of story I want to tell in 5e as long as it you know matches the system so yeah uh, fair warning to people who are now uh, thanks to our conversation I'm sure just raring to go and create some homebrew uh, do review uh, the licenses that Wizards puts out as to what sort of content you can do um, the licenses on free material are extremely generous, but as soon as you start monetizing, there's a different, the, you have to do the open game license, and that's a little bit, you gotta be a little bit more careful with that. Yes, we are not lawyers, and would not recommend publishing anything on a content, on a forum that is not r slash Unearth Arcana, without first consulting with people to make sure it is okay. Unearth Arcana, you should consult the rules, but otherwise, pretty friendly environment. Yeah, and as long as you're doing it for free, you're pretty safe. Yes. So, Pat, uh, what are we talking about today? Yeah, so the goal of our first episode today is to talk about two rogue subclasses. Um, these two were both created by Kibbles Tasty, uh, someone who I've read a fair amount of the work of, and you've actually, I think, are on the Discord and talk to a little more regularly. Uh, but really, our goal here is to explore two rogue subclasses and give you an idea of kind of what sort of review we're going to be doing on these, um, how we talk about subclasses and what the divine space, like what the design space is, how we compare one subclass to another subclass and how we compare them back to things that wizards posted. I'll just give you a good example. And the rogue is a nice, fairly simple class with a kind of interesting design space to talk about, which should give you all an idea of how, how you can look at homebrew and give it an idea of what things to look out for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what uh, this author uh, that we're looking at today uh, is um, Kibble's Tasty on Reddit. I have no idea what his actual name is, and that will be common here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't really know people's real names except for like third party books. We know their Reddit handles. He is an acquaintance of mine now. I would say uh, I am on his Discord, and I've played a game of D&D, kind of a playtest game with him, using um, a system that another homebrewed uh, designer, the Arena Guy, wrote. And he is reasonably well-known in the circle that Pat and I run in for uh, the Inventor class, the Scion class, the Warlord, and the Occultist, uh, which are all full classes that he's written for the game, uh, the Inventor being originally kind of an alternate take on the Artificer class. Uh, the Scion obviously being a psionic class, because Wizards has given up on the Mystic. Oh, rest in peace. Uh, do we... do? did we like the Mystic? Well, <laughs> no. 
Yeah, we don't have to get into that right now. Um, uh, but he's also uh, made a bunch of subclasses. He's working on a uh, crafting system for the game, which is a huge endeavor. Uh, it really boggles the mind how much work he's put into that. Um, but right today, we're going to be talking about two rogue subclasses that he did, the Divine Agent and the Surgeon. Yeah, so I guess as we jump in, we should talk about I mean, to clarify again for sub, what we mean by subclasses, um, you know, every class has their own kind of choice of path that you can take in addition to the um, broad sweep of class. So for Rogue, we're talking about archetypes here. Um, and um, let's talk a little bit about the Rogue kind of before we dive into these subclasses separately. Um, one of the things that Andrew and I have talked about with the Rogue before is that the Rogue is a class that has a lot loaded into the full class and generally tends to be not as not as loaded in features as some other subclasses are i mean obviously compared to something like warlock where you get to choose that at level one and it has a lot of ramifications but even so you know things like sneak attack and which is really the core of the play style around how rogues approach combat is um you know front and center to the class and not necessarily something that is you know highly iterated upon subclasses now i think when we look at these classes we're going to talk about today, there are some really interesting ways that you can make sneak attack really interestingly flavored uh, with the way that you do archetypes. Um, but at the end of the day, like that is a core feature that every class or every subclass has for Rogue. Uh, so the design space is a little different. So it, it's definitely not, I would say that uh, sorcerers have a lot in the subclass where um, rogues, you won't see a huge alteration in playstyle depending on your subclass. The best you get is often subclasses will give you an additional uh, type of thing you can do with your cunning action bonus action, which can alter your round-to-round -round combat a little bit. But there isn't a ton of design space there, as Pat said. And additionally, uh, the design space that there that is there in the subclass is kind of backloaded. Uh, you get your third level feature, which is where you take your roguish archetype. But after that, you don't get another feature until level 9, which means you're playing with very little of your subclass through tier 1 and tier 2. Now, when we talk about tiers of play in D&D, that's a really important thing to think about. And I think, I don't know, Andrew, I mean, I have only played in one long-term campaign that has ever gotten past level 10. Uh, that was the one that you DM'd. Uh, and that's the first time that's for that level of play has ever really mattered. I'm just DMing a campaign that's getting there and, uh, you know, it's already pretty uncommon. Um, I think a lot of players really spend a lot of their time between levels 3 and 8. Um, just because that's like the nice, the comfort zone. And, you know, usually you can get there without a party falling apart for unknown reasons. You can cover some really interesting story ground in about that level of time. But that's, I think, what a lot of people consider to be like the core gameplay um, of D&D 5e, where the balance is at its strongest and where people will spend the most time playing. Yeah, it's definitely kind of a chicken and egg scenario, because on one hand, Wizards of the Coast does not create a ton of high-level content, because they know that most play isn't happening in Tier 3 and Tier 4. But at the same time, because there's a lot less, like, official adventure support for that level of play, a lot fewer people play at that level. Yeah, there is certainly a feedback loop that goes on when you talk about uh, level of support and then how many people play it. Um, there are a lot of interesting adventures out there that exist for high level players um, to say that they're, but yeah, they're definitely not wizards focused compared to, you know, some of the earlier level adventures. And I mean, you know, 
Curse of Straw doesn't get up past level 15, you know? Like, that's considered to be one of the staples of the genre. Uh, so, yeah, getting back to Rogue a little bit. So, there is, the, like, when we talk about that, and, you know, the idea that the Rogue subclasses get their feature, two of the really four features that they get um, at level 13 and 17, that means that a lot of players aren't super likely to experience them uh, on an average game. Um, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it does mean that when you want to have a rogue class that has a lot of flavor, you really need to hit the ground running at level 3 when they finally take their subclass. Um, because you can't guarantee that what comes after that is going to be relevant to your players. And I think that's true of a lot of subclasses where you really want it to feel its most flavorful at the start, but especially true when the features are so spread out across the levels. Yeah, and uh, not only do you need it to feel flavorful, but uh, you can't just like load a subclass up with ribbon features at that level to be like, oh, this is the flavor of that subclass, because you really do want to alter the gameplay loop a little bit. This, uh, the Divine Agent and the Surgeon, which we will be looking at, I swear, in just a minute, <laughs> once we're off our soapbox about subclass design, need to be mechanically distinct as much as they can be given the kind of small design space they have to work with with those level three features from just playing a thief right there's nothing wrong with playing a thief but it, you know like there's a if if you want to delineate then you need to start that early and you need to make sure that players feel oh i, I love when this comes up in game design like i want to feel like a spider-man or i want to feel <laughs> like a like an inquisitor yeah uh you know but like but that's that's what it is right like yeah it's a role-play game and you want to make people feel like they're doing what they're doing and like the choices that they've made matter so yeah and obviously um to an extent this is important for published material but even more so for homebrew material where it's like if there isn't a a useful mechanical and flavor distinction to this subclass then why are you putting it in is really the question you want to be asking uh, so with that in mind, I think we can go ahead and uh, jump into our first one. Uh, do you want to get us started talking about the Divine Agent? Yes, so um, the Divine Agent um, is a roguish archetype that if there wasn't a uh, subclass for the rogue called the Inquisitive, would almost certainly be named the Inquisitor. But that would be confusing. So we're calling it the Divine Agent because that is what Kibbles calls it. And it is kind of a paladin-rogue combination, where this rogue has a bit of holy magic going on that allows it to um, fight against the creatures of the night. Yeah, so you can think of, you know, you can think about this, uh, I mean, often you can think of, like, the Spanish Inquisition. Um, You know, that idea that you have um, people who are devout in their faith and are really you know, follow this order or guideline. Um, yeah, he specifically says, like, they follow an organization, almost always following, like, an organizational code, being zealous. Um, but the extent to which they are doing that, like, above the ground and are choosing to, uh, you know, follow the rules, like, don't murder and steal, or are going to publicly challenge you to combat. You know, that's not necessarily what's going on here. These people are following those religious orders in a way that is more subtle, uh, more underground, following that rogue archetype. 
getting into these abilities, uh, we start off at third level. Uh, most third level rogues get uh, two subclass abilities. One is more ribbon and one has like more mechanical impact. Um, what I would consider the ribbon ability is this ability called Purification, which allows you to uh, take your sneak attack damage and make all the extra damage you get from your sneak attack radiant damage. Yeah. Now, I think it's, you know, it's an interesting one because it, it is ribbon, um, but it's also kind of helpful. Uh, you know, when we talk about being able to change the damage type of certain attacks. Um, the main reason that would matter, besides a flavor standpoint of, well, now your sword is light, uh, is, oh, well, now you can resist certain types of resistances. You know, it's especially helpful if you're, like, fighting undead or demons. Well, like, all of a sudden you can do radiant damage. That's less likely to be resisted than your plain old slashing damage. Uh, so it's a nice ribbon ability. You know, it's like slightly stronger than a standard ribbon, but also it's not going to break your game unless you are throwing hundreds of vampires at your characters. Yeah, yeah. And uh, again, it, it it is really nice at thread level. It does fall off a bit because almost nothing is resistant to magical bludgeoning, piercing, slashing. At thread level, it can be that extra little bit your Inquisitor needs to actually fight the werewolf mm. um, and not just like bounce against it um but a after which time it becomes this really excellent way of doing a pseudo smite for a paladin -y rogue um so looking at the next ability a little bit more uh, so church militant um this is uh i guess the more meaty and mechanical uh, of the two features at third level um when you choose the archetype you gain proficiency with religion uh, martial weapons and you gain the use of holy water as a weapon which i'd like to add is metal as all get out <laughs> um thank you kibbles for weaponizing holy water a little more effectively than the player's handbook did um and then when you choose to throw holy water uh you have proficiency with throwing it uh your proficiency bonus is also doubled for intelligence religion checks um so for the rogue getting proficiency with all martial weapons is huge i think um because it opens up a lot of options for using your sneak attack damage that otherwise don't exist. Uh, daggers are great, but they don't don't have as many clicky clacky big damage dice as uh, you might want. You're smiting down some great demon with your sword blazing with light. Yeah, I will note that uh, rogues do get uh, short swords, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, rapiers as well. Yeah. And you can only uh, use sneak attack with a finesse or ranged weapon. Um, so you can bring a longsword into the fight. You might find yourself a little bit lacking on damage. What I think the real benefit of this is, is staking vampires with a heavy crossbow. Yes. Uh, the, the art that Kibbles has chosen to incorporate with this uh, does feature a, you know, this Inquisitor looking fellow with a very... Uh, very nice heavy crossbow uh, that I think you know, very much matches the the genre archetype. You know when you look at kind of this Inquisitor style, um, and it's it's you know it's helpful. It gives it gives Rogue a ranged option between that as well as the Holy Water that is just a little more substantial than maybe just shooting a hand crossbow. Going back to the Holy Water for a second because that is. Um... The player's handbook does talk about vials of acid and vials of alchemist fire and vials of holy water. And one of those rules that will kind of sneak under the radar, if you're not careful, is the fact that nobody's proficient in throwing these things and they're all improvised weapons, which can really put a damper on your pyromaniac tendencies. 
Yeah, no, I it's it's a nice little thing that Kibble's added in that makes uh, you know, it gets around that rule that otherwise I think a lot of people would have ignored. It's like oh, throwing things, right? Like who's professional with throwing things? But no, no, according to wizards, uh, you do not know how to throw vials until you have trained yourself how to do so. So uh, that's part of this. That's part of this folks' training. That that reminds me. Uh, I once heard somebody note that. Every first-level character in Dungeons & Dragons knows how to accurately throw a dagger 20 feet, which is, if you think about it, not an easy thing to do. I would, uh, I would not encourage any listeners out there to pick up your dagger and try and throw it 20 feet, uh, but if you have a good, clear, safe, uh, safe time to do so, give it a try and see how accurate you are. I bet you will be more impressed by your first-level wizard than you've ever been before. Yeah. I mean, in addition to the whole reality warping firebolt thing. Eh, well, you know, first level. Okay, so moving on, we skip all the way to ninth level, and we get sanctific- Hold on, I'm gonna say this correctly. Sanctification, there we go. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yes. Uh, at ninth level, you learn the spell's protection from good and evil, des- divine favor, and shield of faith, which, if I am right, is three first level spells that are cleric paladin. You can cast these spells without consuming a spell slot a number of times equal to your wisdom modifier, combining all uses of these spell slots. So, if you have specking Wiz uh, two or three times, uh, you regain your uses after completing a long rest. Uh, Your holy symbol is your focus. Uh, Additionally, uh, during a short or long rest, you can create holy water uh, by a ritual in which you presumably lay down 25 gold pieces on top of a a vial of water and then crush them into the water. I don't know how that ritual actually goes, but 25 GP and a vial of water plus a short rest, you can get some holy water. Yep. Um, So I think this is a nice little ability for the sake of, you know, adding in spellcasting. I think if you were going for any sort of Inquisitor that didn't have spellcasting, it would fall a little bit short because ideally they, their religion really informs their powers. Um, so it's nice that this comes in here. Um, of those three spells, I think, you know, all of them have really strong flavor for the class that's there. Mechanically speaking, I think they all generally do pretty well. I, um, Shield of Faith, I, you know, I think is one of those spells that is very useful for someone who's, you know, adding that AC bonus uh, when they otherwise might have a decent chance to get hit, which rogues often are bouncing in and out of melee combat. So a little extra AC certainly doesn't go too bad. Uh, protection from good and evil is just one of those really classic, you're going to go into the dungeon and you know to expect undead. All right, well, let's armor up. Um, yeah. Um, protection from good and evil. Like, you, you, we're talking about these are, uh, you're, you're at ninth level already. Your full casters have fifth level spells if you're in a party playing this uh, class. But, you know... just a flat plus to AC and the whole disadvantage on anything extra planar attacking you from protection from good and evil, Uh, those are the sort of first level spells that maintain their utility even at this high, uh, at this reasonably high level of play. Yep. And another beautiful thing is when you're a rogue, you're often not concentrating on another spell, which means that you're not too worried about whether or not your Shield of Faith is going to drop, um, because worst case, you can just cast it again, um, or, but you don't need to worry about, well, is there another ability? That kind of breaks down a little bit when they gain a little more abilities, uh, a little more, a few more spells at the 17th level feature, but we'll, we'll get there when we get there. Yeah, um, and the other thing is, is that rogues are actually, um, other than, like, 
conjuration wizards. They might be the best at concentrating on things because uncanny dodge just makes their concentration saves really easy. It does. Um, very which is very nice. <laughs> um, moving on to the 13th level ability. This is Divine Guidance. This is where you get a little bit of that Diviner Wizard um, or Diviner Cleric, the Oracle aspects of Faith coming in. Uh, so you gain the ability to cast Guidance and Augury at will with the normal consequences of Augury still taking place. So that kind of neuters the I can just spam the spell. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar, that's just a the more times you cast Augury, the less likely it is to be accurate. And then additionally, if you've dealt radiant damage to a creature in the last minute, you have advantage on all perception or intelligence or perception or investigation checks against it or its magical effects, and can see it impeded by darkness, including magical darkness. Uh, so this is really that once you've uh, hunting once you've hit something once, you can hunt it down, which I think is nice. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say this is this is I mean it's a little high level for it, but it is it is an excellent form of kind of a pseudo hunter's mark. Obviously, no damage boost, but uh, getting that uh, advantage on everything against it. And you might, as a as a divine agent, you might have used one of your expertises on investigation. You're gonna be insane at hunting things down. Yeah, um, and I think you know one of the nice things that goes along with it uh, is that. Kibble's, per- I'm guessing purposefully, did not put a cap on the number of targets that you can have going on with this ability at once, uh, which is mm-hmm. helpful, uh, you know, comparing it to, like, a Hunter's Mark, for example, where you might know where the target is, but you can only do that with one target at a time, and it takes a bonus action to be cast here. You know, feasibly, if a if the rogue is making attacks against multiple targets, um, and, you know, they're getting it at least, hopefully, on their sneak attack, they're able to theoretically track more than one creature at once and really build in the flavor of this um kind of supernatural evil hunter um in almost like a witcher kind of way i really think it's also great in that is that uh your dm could totally set up since you can track a bunch of things situations in which you might want to split your attacks a little bit which is normally like not dnd strategy no Anything that can encourage you to do something that's, like, normally a little bit suboptimal can be really fun. Yeah. We love breaking the mold of how players play. And it makes for the most interesting homebrew is how can I make people get out of their comfort zone a little bit and avoid crunching numbers quite the way they're used to. I I do want to bring up, just real quick in this ability, um, that you can see the creatures that you've, you're hunting um, unimpeded by magical darkness. Um... However, if you do happen to be in an area of magical darkness, it doesn't specify that you can see anything else. That's a good point. Yeah, like, <laughs> unimpeded by magical darkness means that you are still theoretically blinded when you're inside of the magical darkness, uh, which is, I guess, helpful. Or it's not super helpful to be blinded, even if you can see that creature. Uh, but that's, you know, like, it does, it, it has a kind of the edge case of neutering someone that's hiding just inside a magical darkness. Uh, mm-hmm. Just to buyer beware running into the magical darkness is still not a good idea even if you can see the big bad inside of it yeah i'm just imagining like a vampire cast darkness in like a warehouse full of like boxes and shit and it's just like yeah i can chase the vampire but my shins are gonna take a beating as i run into every crate true this is true can't can't see through walls either worth noting yeah um <laughs> So our last ability here, 17th level, we're really into just... Uh, 17th level, of course, is when uh, full casters get 9th level spells. So yes. these are really... Bi- this is a very big ability for the rogue. 
um, and it is called Cleansing Fire. Uh, starting at 17th level, you can use the bonus action granted by your cunning action to grasp your holy symbol and burn away any evil affliction, ending the effect of a curse, disease, or condition inflicted by magic on yourself. When you do this, you take 1d12 fire damage that cannot be, cannot be resisted in any way, but gain an equal number of temporary hit points. Um, let's discuss this first, because that was a big chunk of text. There is a little bit after this, which is also very interesting. Uh, but you can do this once per short or long rest. Yeah. A curse, disease, condition inflicted by magic. So that is very wide open. It's pretty much if there is an effect on you that was caused by magic um, or disease, you can get rid of it if you choose. Um, which is huge, I mean, but also at 17th level is definitely within the realm of things that people can do with lower level spell slots. Um, yeah. So it's not too strong it's just it, it's good yeah um the only thing that i could conceive would really be a problem for a divine agent at this point is a charmed or dominated effect where they're prevented from acting of their own free will um it's true or the paralyzed condition where you can't grasp your holy symbol but even the restrained condition allows you to grab things and make weapon attacks so that's not an issue yeah and it's with your cunning action, so you don't even lose your turn. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's good. And I think, you know, the, um, I was going to say the next brief sentence on it is that it, you do begin it on a short or long rest. And I think you mentioned that. Um, so it's, it, you know, I think recharging on a short rest means that it's, you know, it makes it feel better than just, like, having someone spend spell slots on you. Because you're like, oh, well, this I can get back this back instantly hmm. uh, once we take a nap. <laughs> so. In general, uh, martial classes should have abilities that recharge on a short rest, unless obviously they're being given, like, spell effects, which are very useful to recharge on a long rest. But uh, the kind of short rest, long rest distinction really is the more short rest you take, the better marshals are going to do, and the fewer, the better uh, casters are going to do. Yes, that is the, like, the unwritten balancing mechanic between those two play styles is how you rest. Yeah, and, and so that's actually, it's a really excellent, it's why warlocks are functionally a martial class. Uh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, it, it, it's really good to see the attention to detail of, like, that unwritten rule that Wizards of the Coast put in being present here, where the spellcasting is done on a long rest, and the other abilities are done on a short rest. Yeah. Um, additionally, with Cleansing Fire, you get... Flame Strike and Fire Shield added to you, the spells you can cast using your Sanctification. Those are some nice spells. Flame Strike is like one of the like fifth level evocation. Uh, so that's I mean that's really really strong. Uh, you know, it deals fire and radiant damage to creatures in a ten foot radius, forty foot tall cone um, with a Dex save. It is notably when you look at it, it's the only damaging option. Besides, we'll talk about, you know, fire, like, both of those two are the only damaging options of the spells that you get access to via Sanctification and the subclass. So, instantly really nice, um, and also having just the same usage as the first level spells that you got at ninth level, it's really, it, I mean, it creates a lot of incentive to use those, I think, which is good. I think it's the kind of thing you want when you build up a something level character, and especially for a rogue who only gets one attack per turn anyway. So if you're going to use your action to do something, the more satisfying a damage option can be, the better to replace that sneak attack that you're going to miss. 
Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of people don't love Flame Strike because it is uh, basically the same damage as Fireball and only a bit bigger. Obviously, you've got to understand that it's a cleric spell. Yes. Um, and clerics aren't supposed to have quite the damage output of a wizard, although that's debatable at points. So, but the fact is, is that this rogue gets great use of it because you don't have to consider it a first level or a fifth level spell for them. It's just a spell. They use a use of it the same way they use a use of any of their first level spells, like you said. Yes, very simple mechanic. Uh, also, Flame Strike does very well with the Divine Guidance from earlier, because if you hit creatures with the Flame Strike, even if they make their save, they take Radiant Damage, and you uh, gain that, that advantage on all those checks, and you can see them in Magical Darkness. So, in the right scenario, that can make for a very tide-changing ability. Yeah, uh, and then we can briefly mention Fire Shield, obviously. A very nice spell in and of itself. Uh, yes. Maybe not as much to say about it as Flame Strike, but it's very flavorful. Um, and it's one of those spells that's 10 minutes without concentration, meaning it's very easy to walk into a fight with. I will say, I think this is a... It, it goes... Fire Shield, from a flavor standpoint, is maybe one of the few things like on a flavor standpoint that I think I have a bit of a issue with, just because it's uh, Fire Shield is a wizard spell, whereas the rest of them all kind of come from the Cleric Paladin suite. Um, mm. It is fourth level compared to the fifth level one that you get with Flame Strike, and then also is it's got the fire aspect to it, but it's not particularly divine the same way that Flame Strike deals fire damage and radiant damage. Um, so it does feel like it's a little bit of a weird kind of adjacent space to all the other spells that you get. Um, but that being said, the the ability that you're getting this with is cleansing fire at 17th level. So there's like some precedent there. It's just a bit of a weird twist. I can definitely see where it's coming from a wreathing yourself in flame perspective. Yeah. Um, because that is very similar to the cleansing fire ability. Um, but I do agree that it is um, an interesting poll. Something that comes to mind, I'm trying to think of what Holy Aura, it's a little bit more, oh, it's an 8th level spell. No, don't do that. Don't, oh, don't yeah, do that, no, Kibbles. Don't take my advice. Yeah. No, and, and that's the thing, is that you are looking, you know, and Kibbles and other homebrew creators are obviously not a, they'll do put in the work to write their own spells, but... Uh, there is a sort of uh, balancing act you have to make of, like, how accessible do you want to make it, and having more spells that are in other homebrew supplements or at the bottom of your subclass but not in the player's handbook makes it just mildly less usable. But if your goal is to get as many people using the material as possible, you may be limited to the Wizards of the Coast spells. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, um, I need to kind of give my, like, summary thoughts on divine agent i think it's definitely very it's a very accessible subclass for the rogue that has a good way of like branching into it without adding on these really complex mechanics you really only add one resource to keep track of which is nice um it does a good job of incorporating the flavor that would come with this that makes it feel distinct both from a cleric and a paladin um take advantage of kind of that very the things that a rogue would want to have without just homogenizing them with those other divine spellcasters. And then I think ultimately, you know, does a good job of balancing out with some of the other rogue subclasses. None of these abilities are going to break the game in any way, shape, or form, but none of them are also make you feel like you're not keeping up with kind of the other, the pacing, especially compared to things like Assassin, where maybe you have, there are some problems with Assassin and Zelf that I don't see quite as 
existing the way that it does with this class, which is very much a smoothed out profile. It's not something that all rogues have. I really do like how it um, each uh, section of the subclass focuses on a different thing with third level abilities, uh, martial prowess, and kind of basic abilities. And then at 9th, you get your abjuration, at 13th, your divination, and at 17th, your evocation. Yep. Um, and I think they're all very useful. I, I think a DM would have a very easy time allowing this because the limited spell list basically allows the DM to know what extra tricks the rogue can pull, um, and means that it's unlikely to break encounters given a reasonably prepared DM. Yeah, and these are all very straightforward spells as well, I would kind of add. None of these are the kind that uh, have loopholes to jump through, no teleportation magic or anything like that, so. Yeah, and your rogue will feel excellent when you send way too many vampires against them and they're just whiffing because uh, protection from evil and good is up. Yep. And I guess obviously the one thing that I would also add about whether or not this is right for your game, uh, obviously this Inquisitor, we talked about the view this Inquisitor has a pretty distinct kind of niche. I think it goes really well in things like a monster hunting campaign, a vampire like a Curse of Strahd, for example. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty decent like throw in for that if you have like a vampire hunter. But it's, you know, it's the the flavor of the subclass is pretty narrowly tied to having a religion or other kind of very strong, zealous thing for your rogue to fall into. Um, so that's worth keeping in mind that when you're maybe working with a character to create this type of thing, uh, you know, really talking about, well, what, what kind of organization are they tied in with? What are the expectations that they might have that go along with that? How do I make sure that this, this flavor feels like it is organic to the setting that it is being played in is not you know, Bloodborne being thrown into a into a My Little Pony campaign. <laughs> I was going to say, it's always sunny in the Forgotten Realms. Uh, yep, 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 yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think this is uh, extremely bound to having some sort of uh, religious or less often political organization in your game that this uh, character can work with. But um, obviously that's a challenge for the character and the dm but i think it leaves it gives a lot of opportunity back if you handle it well good stuff yeah all right well we'll move on to the second and last thing we'll talk about today as far as the subclasses go and that's the surgeon uh so the surgeon is a another wisdom tangent rogue subclass from kibbles um they both kind of rely on wisdom as their secondary stat although there's some flexibility there that kibbles talks about in his additional notes um the surgeon is pretty much what it sounds like it is a rogue that specializes in anatomy they are kind of a medic that has learned how to deal with things on the battlefield such as roper bites dragon burns acid sprays and worse uh, and they use that anatomy to both help and hurt uh, as kind of that knowledge and wisdom that comes along with being a surgeon gives you the ability to deal with all sorts of medical anomaly. So this is really kind of well-flavored to exist in a world where medicine is a kind of a, a well-trained art or something that even you've done before. You know, like you can definitely flavor a witch doctor to be a, a surgeon of a different kind, or a plague doctor, I should say, not a witch doctor. Now, yeah, Witch Doctor is a little bit of a different thing. Yeah. We'll get to some Witch Doctory subclasses eventually. I'm oh, sure. yes. Uh, but, you know, like the Plague Doctor, you have the um, like the Jack the Ripper type of someone who's really good and knows their anatomy. Um, there's, some, there's some really interesting kind of directions you can do to go down here. And it makes, and one thing we'll talk about is it makes the medicine skill front and center, which I think is one of the 
one of the less attractive skills, even if it's really useful in the few circumstances where you get it, uh, but especially with the prevalence of healing magic in 5th edition, having something where the medicine skill takes front and center is a nice change of pace. Yeah, I can see this being absolutely excellent already before we even discuss the abilities for a slightly lower magic setting where healing magic is not as prevalent in the world um, or for just um, a very, very haughty rogue who is like, yes, yes, your divine magic works, yeah, but uh, the power of science is going to be what the next age is all about. Yeah, I can create an interesting little transition and juxtaposition, some good character flavor. So let's go ahead and dive into the features. The um, the first, and what I would guess what we'd call the ribbon feature for third level, is paramedic procedures. When you choose this, you gain proficiency in medicine. Obviously, if you already have proficiency in medicine, you can choose from uh, history, nature, or herbalism, just to make sure that you don't lose that proficiency, which is important for the rogues as skill monkeys. Yeah, let me stop you right there with that, actually, because this is a this is an interesting example of something that's important in homebrew design, is um, a lot of times uh, you want to give a skill proficiency in a subclass because it's like, well, they have to have this skill proficiency for the subclass to work. The surgeon's an obvious example of that. Uh, but you don't ever want to punish them for having taken that skill proficiency at character creation. No. Yeah, you, it's, it's, it's nice when you can have your subclass flexible for those people who want to have, you know, to have medical history in their background and therefore they get medicine. But like, obviously that's going to be true of this, but to, to get to reach third level and basically have one of your features fall flat because you do already have that proficiency is a little bit sad. Additionally, you can use the bonus action granted by your cunning action as a rogue to make a wisdom medicine check. Uh, administer or consume a healing potion or use a healer's kit when you use a healer's kit the target regains additional hit points equal to your wisdom modifier uh, this is cool for a number of reasons i mean the being able to make a wisdom medicine check to stabilize as a bonus action is incredibly helpful um, being able to not ruin your action economy to help an ally out is very helpful it also feeds into some of the other features that are further down the chain uh, being able to do that with the bonus action administer consume a healing potion a lot of people already play with the rule that healing potion can be consumed as a bonus action but being able to administer with the one with bonus action gives again gives you another way to heal people without any issues uh or use a healer's kit healer's kits are uh, among the other things that are not super well used in a lot of DD circles and so i think giving a good use of it uh, super helpful and means that you're not always searching out for healing potions because you know you've got something in the back pocket yeah um I, again i i want to reiterate what pat said um healing in fifth edition um, i'm not gonna crunch the numbers right here in front of you is almost never efficient with your action unless somebody is on the ground unconscious um this is just a, a piece of advice that most clerics end up internally understanding after playing for a little while uh, um you almost always want to be dealing damage to the enemy and p only picking up people when they go unconscious but that changes entirely if you have really useful bonus action healing yeah it is and i think the rogue is one of those classes that is really strongly built around its bonus action as the cunning action feature is pretty much meant to do uh, and so giving that giving that rogue who has all these bonus feature actions the opportunity to help out as a support for healing the group during combat, I mean, one, 
adds that flexibility to that role that makes it really helpful and means that a healer might not need to take healing word. Uh, it also gives the rogue yet another kind of meaningful choice with their bonus action. You know, do I should I duck out of combat or do I, you know, use this cunning action to slam a healing potion down my poor barbarian's throat? Mm, that's an image. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a really cool thing, and again, it, t- it ties right into what we were saying about subclass design, as it changes the gameplay loop immediately. Yep. Again, going to, so going to Antonquil Assessment is kind of the next feature. Starting at third level, you can use bonus action through cunning action to make a medicine check targeting a creature with a DC equal to its AC to access its weaknesses and how to effectively eviscerate and dissect it. Uh, you have advantage against humanoids and disadvantage against constructs and elementals. I do appreciate kind of stopping here for a second i do appreciate that there is this distinction made against humanoids versus construct elementals um i was initially worried when i read through this like oh is is this going to be completely useless against creatures that don't have anatomy and the answer is no like it's still something that you can do it's just it's a little different because obviously as a surgeon you're less used to mechanical joints and more used to physical joints but it's nice that it's, it's still something you can use and you don't feel completely neutered when you jump into the planes yeah, the, I mean, going back really quickly to the like the three five rogue, where you just didn't function against undead, and obviously Wizards of the Coast has moved away from that, and so too should Homebrew. Yes. Uh, so on success with that uh, Wisdom Medicine check, uh, you can use your sneak attack against that target, even if you don't have advantage, as long as you make the attack with the dagger. Additionally, if you deal sneak attack damage with a dagger, you can reroll a number of the sneak attack damage dice equal to your Wisdom modifier. Uh, you can use new rolls. This lasts for a minute or until you use this feature against a different target. So once again, really trying to change the way that rogues use their sneak attack. This thing's a really interesting way of working in the subclass, um, change their gameplay loop. So here, you know, you get the ability to use sneak attack if you manage to succeed on this roll. You can sneak attack the target even if you don't have advantage on the attack roll, which is, I think, really nice. I think that's something that a lot of people complain about with the base rogue in general is that the way the sneak attack rules are written, it can sometimes be kind of narrow when you get your sneak attack, which is nice in the sense of it doesn't make it default, but also the rogue is kind of tuned so that if you don't get your sneak attack, you feel pretty bad because you only get one attack per turn unless you use your bonus action to attack. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the designers of D&D have said basically that they intended the rogue to be able to get their sneak attack every turn, either by flanking with an ally or by striking from hiding yeah. um, using their cunning action. But they, they, they basically did the math as though the rogue would always get their sneak attack. So it's good that this is supporting the idea that you should be doing that. Yes. If you're a DM who likes to be stingy with your rogues, ask them how they're doing. Talk to them. <laughs> ask, if, ask if anatomical assessment is right for you. So it's nice there. I think there is kind of this caveat that you can only use a dagger, um, which is like a little bit of a sad thing if you're used to using rapiers, but I think also reflects the reality of what a surgeon is. It goes well with the flavor, and it does make sure that you you get a little bit of balancing act here, that you, you, you can't just do this with whatever you're using. Also, it does make dagger rogues feel less bad, because a dagger rogue is strictly inferior to a short sword rogue. Yeah, because otherwise... With it, standard subclasses. Yeah, yeah. sneak attack uh, it, you know, doesn't do anything to help the fact that you're using a weapon that is a d4 instead of a d6 or a d8. So overall, nice, you know, nice ability really does, I think, help change the way that you use sneak attack and makes it feel better for this 
particular subclass and uh, avoid kind of the pitfalls that can come with choosing something where your sneak attack is harder to use. And initially I, I looked at this and said, oh, well, it doesn't seem like you, you you use that a lot if you're getting your sneak attack via other methods like ganging up on a person. But that whole, um, it's basically the empower spell metamagic, but with your sneak attack, really nice. Just gives you a bit more consistent damage, but doesn't really break the damage math. Yep. And there's no limit on how many times you can use that. You're not burning some resource to be able to reroll that damage. That's really nice. I mean, on there's you can definitely do the math on there if you simulate it, but it's it's going to be like a substantial amount of damage increase unless you. I mean, you do have to use new rolls, so buyer beware if you're already above average. Just reroll ones and maybe twos if you're really looking to gamble. <laughs> yes, yes. Don't don't reroll your fives, please. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, next one is field care. So this is a ninth level ability. Uh, during a short rest, you can clean up and bind the wounds of six up to six willing beasts and humanoids. Make a DC ten wisdom medicine check for each creature. On a success, if a creature spends a hit die during this rest, the first hit die it expends is replaced by the maximum value of that die. Uh, so the immediate thing that I jump to here with this is this is an equivalent, or at least an analogous feature to Song of Rest that belongs to the Bard. Uh, you take a short rest, you take the expending hit die, you make it more effective. And so when I look there at kind of what the comparison is, for reference, the way that the Bard feature works is essentially any number of creatures that are taking a short rest with you by ninth level you have a d8 die and so every creature who rolls at least one hit dice can roll an additional d8 and they add that many hit points here you know there are two i guess few ways that kind of differentiate it one being this target maximum you can only target it to six creatures two the conditionality you have to make a dc 10 wisdom medicine check keep in mind a rogue that takes expertise in this needs to roll not a one essentially <laughs> Uh, and once you get reliable talent, you can't fail. Yes, so it's pretty much guaranteed in practice, even if not in theory. Yeah. Um, and then also it, it scales with a hit die. Um, so effectively, you you know your first hit die is your maximum instead of you gain you roll an additional dice. Um, so you know it's a I think it's nice in the fact that it guarantees more health if you assuming you make your medicine check. You know it guarantees getting a decent amount whereas with a song of rest you can roll a one and that feels like a, a kind of mediocre thing the target maximum as well as limiting it to beasts and humanoids makes a lot of sense from a flavor perspective even if it can you know for a large party it does make it a little bit weaker than an equivalent feature but also it's yeah. healing that a rogue is doing passively with no expense to themselves you know so like that is already in of itself a huge benefit, especially to a party that doesn't have a bard in it. Remember that uh, this rogue also gets uh, essentially non... It costs something because you have to buy healer's kits, but it's non-hit die healing with a healer's kit that you can do in and out of combat. So if you don't want your party spending hit die or you don't have time for a short rest, if you're stocked up on healer's kits, you've got non-resource healing effectively. Yeah. So overall, like, I'd say this is nice. Um, it's, you know, on average, assuming that you make your check, everybody gets an additional three to four hit points, depending on your class, on average, which is nice. You know, it can be low if you were theoretically to roll that one dice, but guaranteed is always better than probability when in doubt, yes. because probability is, it's part of the game, but it, it, it's, you know, variability is the opponent to something that you want to work 
You can tell that Pat's a risk-averse DM. <laughs> I am a data science person in profession, and I can tell you now that statistics sucks sometimes. So going to the 13th level feature, this one's pretty short and sweet. Starting then, you've uh, incorporated a wider range of solutions to cures to the point that you can cure things bordering on supernatural. You can make a wisdom check, a medicine check on a creature within five feet to cure it of the blinded, deafened, paralyzed, or poisoned conditions. If the condition was the result of failing a saving throw, the DC is equal to the DC of the saving throw. Otherwise, it's a 10. So that's really nice. That's a bonus action because you can make medicine checks as a bonus action to cure a creature of a blinded, deafened, paralyzed, poisoned. And the DC, when you're at 13th level, your DCs are probably floating in the 17 to 19 range for the hardest creatures that you're fighting, which means the rogue needs to roll like a 10 or better to cure it. Yeah, not even in certain cases. It's Yeah, and these are the conditions I think that lesser restoration specifically targets. So it's it's targeting the like the basic things that your healer no longer has to spend spell slot stopping and all of a sudden you know that poor barbarian who is friend or, you know, who's been frenzied rage and blinded is no longer struggling to uh, smack his target. Yeah, it, it is really nice. Again, this is this is a lot of weight off your, if you have a healer, a magical healer, it's a lot of weight off their back that they can spend those resources, you know, doing buff spells and things, which is nice. Yep. Feeds back into that core gameplay loop. So uh, our last ability is anatomical expertise. This one, um, we've kind of been going back and forth on helpful and hurtful abilities. This is our final hurtful ability. When you reach 17th level, when you attack a target that you have succeeded on an anatomical assessment of, you can use that knowledge of their weakness to identify where stabbing them would do the most damage. I love that (laughs) sentence. (laughs) You know, uh, say what you will about how everything works together. Like, if you're not playing a rogue that enjoys stabbing people, the surgeon's not right for you because this class is just perfect for the I like to stab things in a way that makes them die. Yeah, again, the, the class is surgeon, but the flavor here can very easily become back alley sawbones. It's extremely simple. Yes. But getting back to the ability, when you make a melee weapon attack against the target that you have succeeded on an anatomical assessment of, you can cripple it, inflicting one of the following conditions. If you hit its hamstring, you reduce its movement speed by half. An artery will cause it to take 44 piercing damage at the start of its turn. Yikes. The larynx will cause it to be muted and unable to perform verbal components of spells. If you hit it in the eyes, the target is blinded. At the end of a crippled creature's turn, it can make a constitution saving throw. DC 8 plus your wisdom modifier plus your proficiency. So as though this were a wisdom-based spell. Um, on success, the effect of the crippling wound ends. Uh, this is at the end of the creature's turn, so they're at least dealing with it for one full turn after you succeed on the strike. Uh, you can do this a number of times equal to your wisdom modifier. You regain the expended uses when you complete a long rest. Um, and that makes sense because this is really closer to a spell effect than anything else. Uh, Once a creature has saved against a wound type, they are immune to that wound type for 24 hours. They have learned to guard their larynx properly. Yes. Yeah, so I like, um, it's, there's, I mean, there's a lot to this. Um, and I think overall I appreciate it. I think it's a, 
interesting way of doing kind of the debuff side of a rogue's work. Uh, you know, like in this in a different way than like you might have a poison. This is more like I understand how this creature operates and I can make sure that those things stop work stop working. So like when you have like I can think of the way this could be really well flavored. Like you're fighting a siren. All right. Well, what if I just you know snap your larynx and all of a sudden you can't sing at me for the next few minutes um like you can do some really interesting role play moments with that there's a lot of flavor in here for the dm and the player to come up with a collaborative like description of what happens you know assuming your party is okay with that obviously there are some restrictions here of like okay well obviously a creature that doesn't have eyes probably isn't going to be able to be blinded and a creature that moves around via appendages that aren't like legs that dm can probably make some rolls there that hamstringing is a different type of maneuver but it opens up a cool avenue to do what what often like called shots are meant to do in 5e when people have that homebrew rule it's that but codified in a way that makes it feel really good and i think most of these abilities are really nice you know half movement suit by half is really easy and good to use especially the ability to stack all of those theoretically if they are bad at their con saves you could have all four of these up on the same creature at one time and they will be flailing around like an npc in a badly coded video game yeah you look at this and you go well these are decent effects but i don't particularly see why this is the 17th level ability but there is no resource burn for this no um this is part of your normal doing what you're doing anatomically assessing and then stabbing Yes. This is just on top of all of that, which is very, very nice. And it really does give a really excellent, um, relatively simple, not a ton of unneeded complexity to the idea of spot-based critical hits, which is a very popular idea um, in a number of role-playing games, but also in 5e homebrew. Yep. It's a short, simple way of... And making it so that you can really incorporate the fantasy of being a surgeon into battle, I think. Uh, so, hmm. overall thoughts on this? I really enjoy it. Um, it's It, again, does this very excellent thing where it staggers the abilities to kind of helping your friends and hurting your enemies in a way that gives the rogue um, some lovely out-of-combat stuff and some excellent in-combat stuff. Agreed. Yeah, it it, uh, it takes a good point of making the fantasy less of a just support or just damager, but instead really giving you a interesting way to balance your mechanics. You can use your those, that cunning action to help an ally or to better hurt an enemy, and that's, I think, a meaningful choice. It changes the core gameplay loop. The flavor itself is definitely not something that exists or that could be wrought out of any of the existing rogue subclasses in the standard books that exist already written by wizards. And it gives you an opportunity to make being a dagger rogue something and not being like a swashbuckler. It gives the opportunity to make it feel good in a way that some of the other subclasses don't really give a good focus on, which is a nice fantasy to have. And that is, that is one of the big things that when we're looking at homebrew we really like is, in addition to being mechanically sound, uh, does it allow you to play a thing that the official content does not? And both of these are a big yes on that. Yep. I think the general ways that I like to think about homebrew, it's like, how unique is it? How well made is it? And then like just the unspeakable cool factor. Um, a lot of the stuff I like about Kibble's stuff is generally he writes classes and subclasses that 
I think are pretty cool and that I would like to have in my games. Um, and I think particularly looking at these two rogue subclasses, they bring things to the table that Wizards does not have. And that makes them pretty good candidates for how to make your next rogue. Especially, I think, looking at both of these, if you're looking at a Victorian or Victorian theme, honestly, the Victorian hunter or the uh, the surgeon is proper. But maybe that's just yeah. the art that he chose. I that's, It motivates me a little bit. Well, that's great, though, because good use of a rat in a game, motivating uh, character decisions and wanting to play a certain type of thing. Yes. If you're in the business of making homebrew, if you're giving it away from free, uh, Wizards will let you use Magic the Gathering rat. Use it, because it will bring so many more people in if you have compelling rat of what you're trying to represent with mechanics. Absolutely. So I think that's kind of where we're going to end today. Uh, we will make sure that when we post this out, we will have the links uh, available to both of these homebrews available to you all, so you can check them out. I highly recommend uh, either Googling them, or also if you just want to go on Reddit and look up Kimball's Tasty. I think he also has a Patreon if you decide you like these and you want to contribute and uh, kind of help support his ongoing homebrew, which will be greatly appreciated. Support local artists. Yeah, well, that is it from us then uh we will see you next week i think we're taking a look at fairies next week yeah we're taking a look at fairies uh especially in the wake of the most recent unearthed arcana coming out from wizards of the coast so you can look forward to that yeah which will be horribly out of date by the time we get to it <laughs> by the time you hear that podcast like that'll be months oh ago. yes you will have heard <laughs> the discourse will have gone a far way away by that time if you have any recommendations for homebrew that you'd like us to review or take a look at or if you uh recommendations for the podcast in general you can reach out to us either via email or reach out to us via reddit uh, on reddit i am you slash ravens you can find me via the ophanim creature i am you aa brock that is a-a-b-r-o-c-k on reddit and our email address which we've just created is homebrewreviewers at gmail.com i'm sure it'll be linked in the description yeah have fun and make some interesting characters out there until next time. Please do. See you next time.